The Ringer's music critic Rob Harvilla curates and explores 60 iconic songs from the 90s that define the decade. Rob is joined by a variety of guests to break it all down as they turn back the clock. Check out 60 songs that explain the 90s exclusively on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor at TheRinger.com. And joining me on the other line, he is Top Chef. It's Andy Greenwald. If only. If only. Wouldn't you love it if Padma said that to you just once in your life? Even if it wasn't really for the show. She was just like, Andy, you're a Top Chef, dog. Chris, Padma, talk, talk to me. And you last year, and yeah. I've I've been flying ever since. I don't care what she says. <laughs> That's right. It was incredible. Uh, Greenwald, here we are today. Uh, you're going to be hearing this late Thursday night, early Friday morning, whatever your pleasure. It's a podcast, so it's on demand. You can hmm. just listen to it whenever you want. But what we're going to be talking about today, right for the spoilers, because Andy and I are going right after the Top Chef finale. So obviously, if you are following along with Top Chef, haven't had a chance to watch it, we're about to spoil the ending of that. Uh, sorry to Kaya, our producer, who who is a victim of our... Of our professionalism, candidly. Really? You know, it's just it's, like, we, we like to get after true. it, and it's just sometimes Kai doesn't get to enjoy TV shows because of it. So first we do Top Chef finale, break, Loki, episode four, Nexus event. I recommend people also check out some of the other great podcasts the Ringer Podcast Network is doing about Loki right now. Midnight Boys, House of Mal, check those out. Greenwald. Mm-hmm. So this is your three, two, one. We're going to start talking about Top Chef now. Andy, yep. we have a new Top Chef. We do. Congratulations to Austin, Texas's Gabe Morales, who won Top Chef 18 uh, moments ago, I guess, if you're sure. the kind of person who fires up the podcast right Depending afterwards. Depending on what timeline you're on, what branch. It, exactly. The sacred timeline. Um, this was a interesting and compelling finale. It wasn't an outstanding finale. I have, I guess I have some general thoughts about how it played out as well as how this finale fit into the context of the season of season 18, which I think overall has been a triumph. I think it's worth noting. Sometimes people like it when we give them a peek behind the curtain a little bit, that you and I had a kind of an interesting Has anyone experience. ever said, I really love it when we get to peek behind the curtain with you guys? One person in the tweet once, <laughs> ergo, it is now canon. Okay. So I can refer to that. Um, I, I still have my sources. I mean, my, uh, I, I came with the receipts, the one receipt that I can't specifically cite. So I, I fit right in on the internet. Anyway, we got screeners for this finale yesterday. Mm-hmm. But the screener we got did not include the last act of the show. So we watched up until the judges' table said, 
uh, we have a lot to talk about. We have a big decision to make. Sure. And then the episode ended. And then we had 24 hours before they gifted us with the last six, seven minutes. Mm -hmm. And this was very interesting to go through it for a day. And not to say this is a humble brag, to say it as a no, complete and total I'm going to stop you right there because instead of you humble bragging, I want to compliment right. you. I want to compliment oh, you. This is this is healthier. I appreciate this. Let me tell you something. You guys, Andy's my best friend. I've known Andy for 25 years. Like, I give him shit on this pod and off the pod. But I got to tell you something. He's a pretty sharp guy. Pretty smart guy. So two times for this podcast, both about mm -hmm. Loki and Top Chef, I mean, going back and forth. I'm a little scatterbrained right now. The playoffs take a long time. Yeah. You're taking a couple of years off my life. I heard you on the Bill Simmons show saying that, you know, talking about soft tissue injuries. I feel yeah. like you, you've, you've suffered a couple Nobody's recently. load managing me. I'm just going for it, <laughs> man. Uh, so Andy, in two different conversations on text, I just got to say, and I, you guys are about to be the, the beneficiaries of this wisdom, but just a wise guy, man. And I don't mean that like, like in the mini sense of New York way. I mean, really sharp. I don't want you to say like this is a humble brag because like you we were we were like I, he was like who do you think won and I was like it's obviously Shoda because I was kind of I was watching and I'm I'm invested and I'm thinking about it but to me I was just doing recency bias I was just like the mm -hmm. momentum just seems to be going in Shoda's direction mm -hmm. and to me Ed and and um, you know a couple of the chefs being like this this is a side dish this isn't a second course didn't I didn't didn't jump out at me like oh man Shoda fucked up. I guess the rice thing I should have thought about more. Mm -hmm. And you, to your credit, were just like, Gabe won. This is before we saw the last seven minutes. You were like, Gabe won. And yeah, it was before it, we saw the judges starting to say, Shota took the first one, mm -hmm. Gabe took the second one, Don took the third one, whatever. No, it was... So kudos thank to you. you. And thank you're you. You're a it, smart guy. It was clear. And again, the edit obviously helped me along. I wasn't present for any of this. Um, I refused to quarantine. I was invited, you know, but I was just like, I, I just can't. Portland no. Nightlife is calling to me. Um, it was clear he won. And it was clear not just from the reactions of the chefs at the table, but looking at the meals that they planned. Um, Gabe's was the only one that transcended, that seemed to both understand fundamentally what the assignment is, which is deceptively hard. It's the same every year, but it is incredibly hard. And I think it was harder than ever this year. This, this ties into a larger comment I wanted to make about the season, which is it was incredible that time and time again during this COVID-affected season, the producers, Magical Elves, Tom, Padman, Gale, all the brain trust behind the show continued to turn lemons into lemonade or even limoncello, if you will. I think Tom would appreciate that. Making choices that they that they could have they could have felt forced, like they were backed into a corner, and turned them into something that was quite moving or surprising or outstanding, like the judging panel, for example, of All Stars. The season suffered the most here in the finale, uh, for a number of reasons. One of the biggest reasons I think that it suffered was that the chefs were burnt out. Um, traditionally, on a top it, chef it season, it actually reminded me of the NBA playoffs. Yes, it's 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 true. The, as we've been saying these last few weeks. Um, the challenges were outrageously hard these last few, you know, over the last few elimination challenges. The cheese one, outrageously hard. Just the sheer prep work of the Dungeness Crab Challenge. Um, the amount of physical labor that went into clam digging mm -hmm. and fishing for your own crabs and then yeah. cook, like, that's, that's nuts. Like, doing three, four, five, six jobs just to get something on a plate. And traditionally, on Top Chef seasons, they finish filming the regular season and then they shut down production. And then one to three months later, they ramp up production again at the finale site. Which is sometimes that. not the same as the, the host city. Generally, it's in a different country it's or somewhere like a resort exciting. somewhere. Yeah. 
And then, you know, the final challenges usually take advantage of the new locale, the marketplaces, what have you. Um, obviously, they couldn't do any of that this year. So it ran right up to the end. So yeah, I think fundamentally, they were burnt. They were also robbed of the chance to get any perspective on what they've learned, what they've accomplished, where they are as chefs. It was really just like, okay, it's Thursday. Okay, here's my dream meal. And you could see that very, very clearly in Shoda and Don's struggles. Um, we can speak more specifically about her in a minute, but Dawn was plagued by the same problems that she's had throughout. She did not have a moment to pause, collect herself, and sort of not pre-plan, which she didn't do a ton of, but re-plan and be like, I, I'm taking this advice in. I'm not just nodding. Shoda absolutely peaked in the last three weeks where suddenly he realized that these chefs were open to extremely complex yet subtle Japanese techniques you know, and Gail was like, please keep giving us this. And I think that he had not cooked that way. I don't even think he cooked that way in his restaurants, the one he keeps talking about closing, which I think were much more casual. He got to this finale, having shown us incredible things, and was like, now I'm going to do something completely different and just be a sort of soulful izakaya chef and do a tribute to my mom. Oh, and P.S., I, I boofed the rice. But it started off, the, I think, the larger issue, though, and this was mm -hmm. when I started getting nervous during the judging, uh, mm -hmm. was that they were starting to give one dish to this person and one like yeah. Shoda gets one and Don gets one. And, and I was like, what do you guys, but you guys are talking about progression. This is supposed, these are all supposed to interlock. So yes. the majesty of Shoda's sashimi course that he served first, that was great. But then as everybody pointed out, the second course felt more of a side dish. And then the third course felt like it was far, part of a different menu. It, it's so weird. And I, I should I should I should clarify by saying this. Like one of the things that I love about Japanese cuisine, about many people love about Japanese cuisine, is it is so, so, so specialized and diverse. There's you can't just say Japanese cuisine. Sure. There's there's sushi chef, there's kaiseki chef, you know, there's there there there's many, many styles and traditions. And that said, Shota up to this point, has proven himself to be wildly adept at not just the classics, but pretty intricate levels of seasonal Japanese cooking. I thought that he would, at least, even if it, he wasn't trained in kaiseki, which is the traditional seasonal Kyoto-based, like all of these courses speak to each other in a rhythm and they begin with, it, it, there's an order to it. I mean, there's a fried course, there's a stewed course. Right. I thought that he would pull from that. But weirdly, it felt as if he had had the sense about him, like, well, I've achieved this level of like transcendent um, daikon radishry, and now it's time to just be more myself. It, 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 there it, are you times, know what it sounded like? It just, it just was not coherent. Perhaps which is he was a victim of watching Top Chef. There have mm. been times on Top Chef where I can sense the judges getting a little bit bored with someone's mm -hmm. execution or someone's thing, the thing that they do. I remember, you know, like... Multiple times it's been like, oh, another pasta, of course. You know, like with right. you, it's always pasta or whatever. And I felt like he spooked himself, even though I don't feel like I got that at all from any of the judges. I didn't get the sense at all that they were like, we're really tired of Shota cooking no. at a, a fucking elite level, <laughs> you know, no one and, and making these fruits in a way this. that only he can make them. Nobody ever was like resistant to that. And that was where I thought, Shoda and Gabe got separated. It was like Gabe achieved, you know, self actualization, chef actualization. Yes, he, was he like, did. This is what I do really well. And just to use an NBA comparison, because I always say this, it's like, uh, because we, I've been talking about this a lot throughout the course of the playoffs. 
There's this idea that coaches save certain plays for the playoffs, that they save certain lineups mm-hmm. for the playoffs, that they're going to, there's one thing in their back pocket that nobody has seen. And I feel like when the chips were down, Gabe had that. Gabe had that with the kombucha, you know, sauce and the 20 ingredient mole that mm-hmm. has felled, you know, sauces have felled other chefs in Top Chef history where they're like, I really wanted to make this thing. It takes 12 hours to come to fruition. <laughs> so I'm going to try and do it in an hour. And he just never seemed at all. He never sweat a single time during that that competition. He's he honestly really has only fucked up once, and it was when he burned linen into a tortilla. Yep. But for the rest of the time, he's pretty been pretty flawless. I totally agree with you. I got a little tripped up in my response because I was trying to imagine what Doc Rivers had in his back pocket other than lint and maybe like a spare <laughs> buffalo nickel. But, Doc, ha- da- Doc has his scorecard for a lovely golf course somewhere. That's right. He's doing he fine right now. Um, Gabe peaked. At the right time, that happens. People catch fire. But what you're speaking to is exactly right. What became clear as the season went on was that Gabe had a or either had or developed over the course of a season a complete synthesis of uh, technical ability and personal story, which is what you is required to win Top Chef these days, and executed it fairly flawlessly the last few weeks. You know, I mean. Yes, you, you, they talked about his sauce work, which was just incredible. But there was there was no competition, truthfully. I don't want to say that. I wish there had been. But looking at this meal, I, it really wasn't close, I don't yeah, think, at I mean, all. When they, when they asked him how many ingredients were in that sauce, were in the mole, mm-hmm. and he was like, uh, for this one, 20. The Blaze and Calicchio's faces were like... In and this is and this is one of those moles that where where I mean we got to see it, but like you burn tortillas and use the ash as a flavor component in it. I mean this is it's awesome. Let me just say that the complexity and beauty of Mexican cooking, you know, and certainly regional Mexican cooking, because Gabe's family and a lot of his recipes come from the Yucatan, which is you know completely distinct from um, Sonora or uh, you know Sinaloa or any other Mexican state. Um, even ones that don't begin with S. Uh, it, it was really beautiful to see. And going back to your point, which I really appreciated, the, the assignment is a progressive meal as if you're, the chef is showing you something and having a conversation with you. And that gets a little muddled when there are three plates in front of every judge, which does make me think that you were probably right, um, especially after what happened in this episode, that maybe we should have done the mercy kill last week and had two chefs in the, in the finale. Mm-hmm. But he's the only one that served a progressive meal that told a coherent story and gained momentum and elevated, you know, what, what was his weakest course? The first one. And what was weak about it? His breading choice and the fry on his cochinita pibil inspired, uh, head cheese. I mean, okay. That's yeah, a, right. that's an, you know, it, as you said to me, when we texted about it, that happens whenever you make head cheese, it, it, <laughs> sure. it's, it's, it, it can happen, <laughs> but that was, that was remarkable. And I also think it's worth noting. Yeah. I can't um, tell you how many uh, pig's heads I have in my trash can right now, just from failed experiments that I've been oh, doing today on a Thursday. Yeah. You, you got to, I mean, thermos, the temperature's, you know, 99 here in LA. <laughs> that's right. It's, it's, it's pig head season, baby. Um, it, it was kind of lovely that Maria was his sous chef. Um, you know, it, it wasn't set up that way necessarily, but you know, the fact that, that two Mexican American chefs were in such beautiful harmony working on this meal was really wonderful to see. And I, and I also do want to give Gabe a lot of credit for, uh, at the end, the very end saying not only what it meant to be the first Mexican American top chef, but that 
you know, the, the still often unsaid reality that most food cooked in restaurants or in professional settings in America, I think, is cooked by people of, of Mexican or Latin American heritage. And so, you know, that's, it's incredibly important for, for this moment to have happened. So, so it, anyway, all of this, though, is kind of saying the, the, is covering over the fact that I think that it was not a particularly dramatic right. or I mean, exciting look, finale. Part of it is because, honestly, in Top Chef, finales never are because there aren't challenges other than yourself. Right. And and I think that I think there have been Top Chef finales that have been longer. Like, they've sometimes done two-parters where, mm-hmm. you know, somebody goes home and then there's the final cook or there's some added element. Obviously, mm-hmm. you've you've refer- referenced previously the the, 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 the Iron Chef one. Brooke debacle in Seattle. Yeah. Or not even a debacle, but just, like, that twist. You know, I think that there was, like, a feint towards that, although, obviously... They weren't going to have to cook against any of those people. Uh, Wait, the, can, the can we just All-Stars. mention that? Yeah, so this is like awesome. They come home from their day of shopping. They're all shook, completely shook. Like they obviously all are like all nerves. Not just they shopping, they're the six hour day of prepping. And prepping. And they walk in the door, the three chefs and a dozen of the greatest chefs to ever be on Top Chef and some of the greatest chefs in the country are standing in their kitchen and Dale makes a joke about how like there's another challenge. You guys have to pick one of us to cook against and the loser goes home or something. And then obviously they make a family style meal for them. But but wait, so Dale has now officially revealed himself as that guy because that wasn't funny. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) did you see Dawn's face? No, she was fucking petrified. Yeah. Horrified. Yeah. I kind of feel like I would love to just, have all of those judges in a confessional and just go one by one and be like, you said it was a bad idea, didn't you? Like, and he did it anyway. Like, which of you actually thought that was cool? I did think that- My guess is the number is low. That meal was very, it was lovely. I want to talk to you about the components of that Mm. meal, which like, just Mm -hmm. honestly, if I had eaten even like a a rational amount of that food Mm -hmm. the night before, which I would not have been able to keep it rational, I would have just been like, we're going to just cram as much of this into me as we can and see what happens. I would not be able to cook my no. top chef finale the ne- next day. So like I would just be like pure duck and bone marrow floating through the ether. Well, yeah. He, <laughs> I'm, I'm right there with you. There are many reasons why I could never Didn't successfully Richard compete or appear. Didn't pile of beef? It was like a <laughs> pile of bones and bone marrow with like beef dressing. Medallions, like it, yeah. It, it was pretty wild. And I can't, I do wonder how that tasted next to I, I go out now, I'm curry. like, oh, that salmon was quite buttery. I might, might need a little nap. <laughs> a, a million percent. Also, Chris, I don't know how you are, but like, I I, I love I love food, like to go to restaurants, have a nice meal, et cetera, et cetera. But if I have an event, like if it's a public event or if I have something the next day or if I have nerves or anxiety, your boy's tum-tum gets a little shy. You know what I mean? Like I am very capable of barely grazing yeah. even at a beautiful repast if there's if it's a stressful situation. So can you imagine the vibes of, there though if you had been like if that's it, what it's I'm like saying. here's a pile of beef and bone marrow, dungeon is crab, Gregory's making food, Melissa's making food, Brooks making food. You're just like in the you're really in the presence of greatness and you're just like I'm going to have a kind bar and a topo chico. And then I got to go to bed because, by the way, I have to be at the breakfast table at 6 a.m. tomorrow for the biggest professional day of my life. Yeah. I mean, just thinking about this scenario stresses me out, even though it was, jokes aside, I think that was the highlight of the episode because 
the 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 community of these chefs. Yeah, and they were and, like, "You're now you're part of the family now." I do want to identify one moment from that meal though, because I thought it was very. Look, like what they choose to show and what they choose not to show sometimes can be a function of the footage that they have and sometimes can be a function of the story that they're trying to tell. And I think sometimes, you know, for instance, I wanted to mention to you like the quick succession of shots of Gabe Shota and Dawn first sitting down with Byron, mm-hmm. Jamie, and Maria at their little individual tables. And, you know, they've got their notebooks and it seemed like to me, at least at some point, either before the competition or during the competition, based on what I saw in the frame that Shoda and Gabe had already started conceptualizing what a final oh, yeah. meal might look like. And I didn't know necessarily if Dawn had gotten to that point. Like Dawn, it seemed like she was still sort of like, I kind of want to do this and I kind of want to do that, but I also want to see what we've got. And I also want to see what looks good. And I kind of want to let it come to me a little bit. Whereas I felt like Shoda had drawings already, yeah, of things I, that he wanted to cook. So that was, that's one thing we can get to that in a second, but there was a moment in this kind of ties together in that, family meal that they have Mm -hmm. with the past competitors where Nina obviously like buttonholes Dawn and is just like, you got to simplify. It's like the cover of a Robert Caro book, right? She's like zooms in. Like she's just like, Hey Dawn, come here. And it's just like, you need to like, whatever you got to do to make it so that it's like a, it's like the process is the mechanism is clear. You got to do it. She got to Coco Chanel it. You got to remove something from every plate. And and that you saw Nina's face when, when, when Don's yeah. first course came out. And it, I think that there were a few people at that table who were like, fuck, like, yeah, you know, this was, this, I was, I thought she could do it. And even at the very end, I think Padma was still kind of like, I think she was like pushing the Dawn agenda. I think she was like, this could still like, I think that, I mean, first of all, you and I are both in the tank for Dawn. We yeah. love her just as a person that we've never met. Dawn gang. Um, I mean, like, it's not even, it, and I, I think that I, I would love to eat all of these chefs food and I, everything, yeah. but like, yeah. That said, I also think that Dawn is, and you could do a better sports metaphor than I could, so I won't try, but you dream on her and you fall in love with her based on the potential. Uh, Now, that sounds belittling. I don't mean that because she can execute it at the same high level as anyone else on the show this season, you know, and other seasons included. But there, she was kind of feast or famine. She either transcended earth, time, space, and taste buds and made an entire table of professional chefs and eaters fall silent yeah, with, fall, fall with their knees. ecstasy or drove them insane with ticky-tack like, what is this flower petal doing here? Or why isn't this other element or why here? did you pickle five things or whatever? And, yeah. And, and, it, and it, I think that that was deeply frustrating because, you, you know, you dream on her. She, if she had caught fire, she could have won. It seemed like know, she but, was, though. It seemed like she was... I think she had the first initial... <laughs> miss like early early in the season where she didn't get yep, all the, the first episode stuff. and then i feel like she kind of put it all together for a while and then there was the yeah, um it, tofu she cut her hand the second to last episode or whatever the one and she where maria went home she misses a plate but it's still like they're just like she missed a plate but it's still amazing that was tofu that was tofu and then the this finale after coming out of that oh no i'm sorry byron went home on tofu i mixed them up but yes yeah, it was whenever but whenever the one that maria went home and, the subsequent week, yeah. Yeah, was like the one where Dawn made incredible food but missed a plate. And then the next, you know, obviously the finale, she misses on, uh, a couple of components from her first dish. I, I'd love to get the chance to talk to her about this, but what I was, what interested me was what you pointed out, which is that she didn't seem particularly prepared 
But she also commented that this is her process, you know, and she had said that before. I think it was in Restaurant Wars, remember, when she kind of fell silent and everyone was like, what are you even cooking? How am I supposed to help and prep? And she's like, I'll, I'll find it. I'll get there. I wonder if it's a, I wonder if it's connected to her athletic career in the sense that I think that athletes and many people in many different fields, but you hear about it a lot with athletes, become very superstitious about process and outcome. Sure. You know, I, I'm going to wait, I'm going to listen to this song before every game, or I have to shoot these free throws in this way. You know, something I hope Ben Simmons takes to heart in the future, but you know, they, they, there's a certain thing that they go through and then they don't want to go against it because they might jinx, you know, they might jinx themselves. And I think that she may be too in love with the mystery. You know what I mean? Like, I think that it has, you know, she feels some either, I got the sense that her relationship to her muse is not under her control always. Like, she feels like, she, you know, sparks Andy, just fly, Andy, which is amazing. Look, And writers I, feel that way all I the time. I was just going to say that. I just deeply identify with yes. being either given 35 minutes to write something or a year to write something. It doesn't matter. It's going to happen exactly. when it happens. And that's like, I've learned in my life to be able to like bang it out if I need to. But if you're like, hey, man, uh, so we're going to do this thing you pitched. Can you file it to me in two weeks? Can you file it to me in two days? Or can you file it to me in six months? It doesn't matter. Like, I can't yes. start to get ready to write it and then do the work. Like, it all happens when it happens. It, and that's why I honestly write relatively short pieces. Like, I don't know how to... It, it, I it's can't also do why it otherwise. Both of us have, you know, <laughs> until recently, our careers were writing. Well, I guess mine still is, but you know what I mean. It, writing on deadlines and things. Yeah. And I don't think either of us could compete on top blogger because there's, yeah. there's a professionalization or standardization that is part of it. And I think that's one of the reasons why Top Chef is so interesting because it does um, champion and celebrate that creative piece of it, the artistic piece of it, but it is also deeply connected to the very, um, you know, the, the, the argument that, that Tony Bourdain used to make too, which is that he's not a chef, he's a cook. And a, mm -hmm. there's a difference. And being a cook means you just have to execute. Bang, 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 bang. The same way every time in a certain amount of time. And, and you know, Don obviously is a successful restaurant cook. I don't mean to imply otherwise. Sure. But there was a time management thing and a strategic thing. And I think that, I mean, the, ultimately, I think Gabe won, not just for his artistry, but because he was like, it's going to be a push to execute these crab fat tortillas, but I'm going to do it. And he did it, except for the linen burning incident, which wasn't a time thing. But I wonder whether or not he took what he learned from that crab fat tortilla mm. incident and was like, here's how I'm going to make sure that doesn't happen next week. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, I wonder, and, and you know, ultimately, if you watch the episode and then you go back to the beginning and watch through it again, the signs are there. Mm -hmm. Like even Maria is with Gabe and when Gabe is like, we're going to do delicata squash with Mexican cane sugar mm -hmm. and a, and a, what was it? That's basically a coffee ice cream that he made, right? Yeah. A, a cafe Mexicano, right? So yeah. like, it, it, and I don't know if it was like, there's cafe de olla, which is a, a Mexican preparation of, of coffee that has a little cinnamon in it. I don't know if that's what he was going for, but, but it, either Honestly, way, it was essentially a coffee ice cream. You, you can just hook me up to an IV of whatever it was that he made there because <laughs> right. it looked amazing. And it also did. you could, I, I almost feel like if you go back, you can kind of see Maria be like, wow, this dude's on another level right now. Yeah. Like, yeah. A, a million percent, a million percent. And I think that it's also worth saying again, that, just in terms of what they were showing us and what food was being centered and celebrated, like what a great season of Top Chef. Great job by the producers. Great job by these chefs. Because even in this finale, 
each of them did something with flavor, with presentation, with preparation that didn't just blow the judges' minds because they hadn't experienced that before. It centered, you know, a, a food way or a culture or, you know, or a food heritage that traditionally hadn't been centered. And, you know, you think about Don's, um, Don putting yam in the dessert, which mm-hmm. a traditional African and then African-American ingredient, or Gabe using tapache. I mean, he called it a kombucha, but a fermented pineapple drink or, or, or using squash in his dessert or the way Shota did a, a Japanese curry, um, you know, and, and, and his beef tongue technique, which everyone dropped, dropped everyone's jaw. And he's like, oh no, well, this is just simple how we do it. It's like, oh, that's simple. Right. You right. hand skin a beef tongue, lightly <laughs> fry it, and then cook it in the oven overnight. Yeah. Great. Normal. Very simple. What other things um, should we hit from this episode? I think I, I just my I would only just uh, echo what you have said, which was that I understand like there's usually an element of the finale where um, the chef's families are on hand when yep. the judgment is given. They obviously, like you said, they get to go home. They get to gain some perspective. There's like a moment to sit with it and think about it. It's kind of cool when they come back and you're like, oh, look, the person's hair's changed or they've done like something else. Like, <laughs> uh you know, it, that stuff is all neat. I, I did get the feeling like it was almost like the bubble playoffs, like where they were just like, this is, these are the three people that we got to the end of this thing. And, you know, you could just tell with them just being like four courses, do your best. You can go shopping. Like there was no anything, the Willamette stuff, like all the local produce, like I get it. Like it was all there and it was all like in the background of it. But I just did feel like there was sort of a lack of pomp and circumstance for very, very understandable yeah. reasons. I also want to just... In terms of the season, a total triumph. Kudos to everyone involved in pulling this off. It must have been incredibly difficult and challenging for any number of reasons, let alone the quarantine. Um, but I, I loved the all-star judging panel. I, I, I loved the chefs. I loved spending time with them. I loved the, the, I mean, it was kind of poetic that the judging table for the finale was uh, Gail, Tom, and Padma, who've been together um since the second season, because Padma mm-hmm. wasn't the host of the first, but that's 17 seasons with the two creme de la creme winners, the two all-star season winners, Richard Blaze and, right. and, and Melissa King. Um, that was awesome. And also, you know, felt really good in a rewarding fan way that like, I know all these people I've watched them develop. I get to see their interactions and this idea that they really are, you know, it's a little TV hokey that they are a family, but it's, it's, they are. They do seem to be very fond of each other, and it's very sweet and supportive and, and fun they, to watch. And I think it. They literally added, were bonded together. I don't yeah. think that they got to see very many other people for a quite no, a but like long time. But Ned Lee is like, oh, do we have to go home? Like, I really like this. Like, this yeah. is really nice. And his, you know, him getting emotional about the curry and then dropping the hammer was an incredible judging moment. I hope he's. I hope all these chefs are brought back in some capacity. Maybe you know, as as we've said before, as as mentors or occasional judges. Well, Dale, I don't know. Dale but is it's doing exciting. top chef amateurs, right? It looks like a, a bunch of them are involved in that. And okay. I think they maybe double filmed some of it. Gail is hosting it. The great Tiffany Derry, who should yeah. have been part of this judging panel, in my opinion, but was back just for this finale. And, you know, I, I just think it bears mentioning again, that like a year or two years ago. And then uh, I think you, again, in the all-star season, we were talking about chef Eric from Washington, who mm-hmm. was really bringing African ingredients to Top Chef in a way they'd never been done before. And the show was open to it, but there were moments when it was clearly learning and educating itself, like so many people and institutions have been, you know, where it's like his season, like he he walked so the season could run in a lot of ways because of this season, you have a a more diverse and 
educated judging panel being like, well, this foo-foo is off as opposed to being like, explain to me what foo-foo is. And the power of Eric in this season is absolutely significant. But I think that it's in some ways pales next to the significance of this. You, you were talking about that sitting around the table scene. Um, it's not just Kwame as a black chef in that room. It's, it's Kwame and Gregory and Nina and Tiffany and Dawn, you know? Mm -hmm. And so you just see this panoply of cultural experiences and diversity in a really wonderful and exciting, and I, you know, it's, it's a TV cooking show, but I, it has been a pretty effective barometer of, of not necessarily culture in America, but food culture in America. And I find it incredibly important as a heavy word, but I find yeah. it incredibly affirming. You know, I, I went out to dinner last night and I just, guys, they love restaurants. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it was, uh, it was great to see, you know, I, I, I kind of had thought wouldn't it be great to have a top chef the way I kind of felt last spring when it was on for Los yep. Angeles? Um, you know, and it was kind of like a, a warm blanket as everything was shutting down. And it was kind of poetic that this show came out, albeit one that felt like it was from a slightly other time because obviously the precautions were a little bit more stringent. But I was like, well, what a great, you know, grace note for like hopefully the end of some era here maybe a rebirth for the restaurant industry, maybe maybe like a coming back out into the world and and going back out to dinner and going back out and tasting this incredible food. Um, I forgot how much butter is used in restaurant cooking. <laughs> yes, and salt. It really can, uh, when, when you reach a certain podcasting age, it can really uh, tip the scales in a I lot mean, of ways. That first bite, fella. you're just like, I'm in train spotting, but then like, the second <laughs> bite, you're like, I'm the baby crawling on the ceiling. That is 80% butter, my man. Yeah. Um, but it was, I just want to say, I just wanted to kind of echo what you were saying, which is that it's a, it was like a real, it was very moving to have this show kind of at the bookends of our time, at least strictly indoors. Uh, obviously, we're not like completely in the clear yet or anything, but yeah. I love the show. I thought it was a triumphant season. I love getting to talk about it. Thanks to our listeners for coming along with us on this journey. We try to be, uh, you know, new critics, as, as, as it were, and we're just judging the text and we're watching the show and we're loving the show. I do think we'd be remiss if we didn't note we're recording this on, on Thursday before the show is aired. We have no idea what sort of coverage this episode will get or, or the winner will receive, but we are aware that there was a report in Eater um, about Gabe losing his job in Austin in December when he had, I guess, finished filming Top Chef and returned to El Comedor, a restaurant where he was not the owner, but he was the head chef and got a lot of acclaim from it uh, for um, unspecified reasons, but violations of some kind. Mm -hmm. uh, a few months later, it was announced he will be opening his own restaurant in Austin uh, later this year, early next year. That is the information we have. Yeah. Um, the, 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 the exact quote was Aralis. This is from the Eater piece. Aralis had, uh, had to leave because of, quote, Repeated violations of our policies and for behavior in conflict with our values. Um, yeah, I mean, that's that's all we know. So, like you said, you know, there, there's very little information, verifiable information out there. And, and we're just kind of like repeating that because I think I think it will come up. Um, so it's worth noting. Um, so and that's that's all we know. That's all the the sort of verifiable information that's out there right now. So we'll leave it at that. This episode is brought to you by Mint Mobile. If you've had it with your overpriced wireless plan with its insanely high monthly bill and unexpected overages, then listen to this. For a limited time, wireless plans from Mint Mobile are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. That's unlimited talk, text, and data for $15 a month. Wow, right? 
To get this new customer offer, just go to mintmobile.com slash watch. That's mintmobile.com slash watch. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower, above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for more details. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right, Andy, we're back. We're going to do... The fourth episode of Loki, you had something else you wanted to hit first, though. I did. I just wanted to bring up one quick thing. Um, I, I assume listeners of The Watch and the um, strong and growing army of CR heads are already aware of this. But in case anyone isn't, uh, this week, earlier this week on the Esteemed Ringer podcast, The Big Picture, you and our buddy Sean Fennessy hosted your buddy, Quentin Tarantino, yeah. for... Like the third time you've had him on a podcast, although those he, were he did rewatchables. three rewatchables. Uh, one he did Unstoppable, Dunkirk, and King of New York right. with combinations of me, Bill, and Sean. And then he just revisited. He came back for the big picture, and we talked about the novelization of his film Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And this is incredible. And I I, I tweeted this, but I just want to say it again. Like you and I and, and Sean, we've known each other for a long time, um, and we've had some we've had some great times, great experiences, a lot of like is this real life talking to our heroes and, you know, having people on the podcast or whatever. For some reason, this one just makes me crazy. I just love it so much. It just seems so improbable and it's so awesome and it's a great listen. But I did want to ask you just since, you know, you are uh, my friend and the co-host of this podcast, like, what was this one like for you? Like, be, be, just because, you know, as you alluded to before, you and I have known each other for 25 years. So we when we met at some point when we were done talking about pavement and arches of loaf or whatever, we probably started talking about Quentin Tarantino because that was a big deal in the nineties. And, and you were like, I find the violence somewhat off putting. I know. And weirdly you stayed my friend. <laughs> that, no, that, that, that take developed later. This that is was, like Jackie was, Brown era. Yeah. And I was like, and now you're just chatting with him about movies for two hours on a podcast. I guess I wanted to ask you what that's just, what that feels like. But also, if you if it's changed your relationship to his art, to his movies, you know, now that you really have seen him tick up close, not that he's ever been a closed book. I guess that last point is worth mentioning is just that like Quentin's a great talker. And I, 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 Sean does such a good job preparing and creating an environment on that show where you can talk about almost any aspect of movies you want to. Yeah. And there's a way to feel very like it's like a celebration of all the aspects of movies. So Quentin talked a lot about this very obscure aspect of the larger film industry, which are these novelizations of films, sometimes novelizations of the screenplays, but often just these adaptations that he grew up reading out of like 
drugstore book racks uh, when he was a kid and reading the, you know, the novelizations for Eyewitness or Gremlins or we, we joked around about the, uh, there's a novelization for Meatballs and uh, there was a cottage industry of this stuff. So this was obviously a labor of love for him and it's a very obscure part of the movie making process, but obviously it leads to a lot of different discussions and I thought the thing about Quentin is that like it, when you're that good at talking and when you're that in touch with not only like what you're doing and why you make the choices you make and you know all, all the other sort of large the large wide angle like look at your own career and you're able to think about that but at the same time somehow not be annoying when you talk about it it's kind of just you just kind of let him go you know what i mean and every once in a while like i actually did find myself in like the second hour kind of forgetting that we were on a podcast and i would just be like i just always kind of i while you were talking i just wanted to ask you what would have happened if uh like your career hadn't worked out the way it would like would you have stayed making movies if like you weren't mm. writing your own scripts and directing your own films and getting Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio to star in them, like what if it basically had been harder? And he had an answer for that. He has an answer for basically everything and really thoughtful. And uh, it, by the way, if you liked, and most people loved Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, the book is awesome. The book is a blast. It's very much written in the sort of uh, Elmore Leonard vernacular. It's really propulsive. Uh, it's a, a quick read. It's it's a mass market paperback that you can put in your back pocket. And uh, it's not the movie though. It's basically like I think two or three scenes from the movie are in the book, but some scenes are changed their setting. Some scenes are elongated. It's it's really cool. So uh, it was it was obviously like an out of body experience to speak with him. Which, by the way, is a tradition of those books. I remember picking up some of them from like, I don't know whether it was Karate Kid or Star Wars or whatever, yeah. and then reading something that wasn't in the movie. And as a kid, you know, this is before the multiverse gang. That's it had thing. that same kind of head expanding, like, wait, there's another version of I this? I think the there's novelizations were this? instrumental in the creation of mm -hmm. like the extended Star Wars fandom. Because like- Ultimately, it, yeah, the ones that were- For a long time, we just had the, those three movies. movies. You know what I yeah. mean? Like there was, so that the, the board games and the toys and the novelizations really did fill in a lot of that, that blank space. It's really cool, and it it's particularly. I, I found it first of all, you guys were great, and I, and and you're right about the Sean runs such a Sean runs a great shop, legitimately. <laughs> like he is so prepared, and it's and it's a very friendly room, but it's a very focused uh, room when when Sean is interviewing, and I respect it so much, and especially when you hear uh, him able to gently and in a friendly way corral someone who could just trample over everything and sure. could just talk about anything in any direction at any time. And to keep focus on that is amazing. But yeah, I also kind of have been digging this Tarantino media tour because he's, you know, he's a 57 or soon to be 58 year old guy, new dad, but also mm -hmm. just kind of. Did you hear the part about, about his kid watching uh, despicable me too? No, <laughs> it's quite, I, it, I would love to hear your thoughts from Daddington Island on Quentin and his 15-month-old son watching Despicable Me 2 over the course well, of Well, I already week. have concerns because I listen to... I've been, it's Tarantino overdose over here because I listen to him on Marin uh -huh. as well. And he... You know, I, this is not new information, but he does talk about, like, seeing Deliverance when he was eight years old. Yes. And knowing that they weren't being nice to Ned Beatty, um, but he wasn't exactly <laughs> sure what was going on. So, you know, it all begins to answer itself. But anyway, it, 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 it it's a great listen, and that was so cool um, that you guys got to do that. I love it. So, speaking of things I loved, yeah, let's pivot to the fourth episode of the Marvel Disney Television Program. I'm, I'm just throwing up an alley oop for you, DeAndre Aiden, because I feel like you want to flush <laughs> this one home. Go ahead. Well, 
this, to my mind, this was the first great hour of television Marvel has produced. I thought it was fantastic. And I thought it was fantastic for a number of reasons, some of which we've touched on over the preceding few weeks. You know, I, I just thought that the performances were delightful across the board. I think the, the production design and direction of the show is really strong and compelling. But more than anything else, it, it, it was an excellent standalone episode that had a lot of highs and lows and surprises and twists. It also was what I like best about episodic TV, which is something that I think all of these IP-driven big franchise stuff has struggled with, which is pacing. And this, so far, has been expertly done. You know, there were slower beats, obviously, in, in some of the other weeks. The last week's episode was kind of the, you know, almost legitimately the before sunrise <laughs> homage, where it was just kind of a two-hander, a talky episode. People walking and talking, yeah. All of the emotion and character work that was done was able to be paid off here in a lot of surprising ways, you know, and in subtle ways. If you t think about like the Mobius, Owen Wilson and Ravana, I did not know her name until I read it in Seppenwall's recap, the, the, the Gugu Mbatha Raw characters relationship. Like how much screen time have they actually had across four hours, six minutes? Yeah. Maybe. Um, but this is what I kind of wanted to drill down on. Those six to 10 minutes were so well chosen and so well curated and well executed that the turn, the heartbreak of this friendship being revealed to be based on, you know, Mis mistruths or lies or betrayal lands. That's really hard to do to plant those seeds so that it pays off later. And the thing that I said to you that I that I'll repeat here that I thought was so impressive was how expertly chosen each scene was. And so this is a little behind the curtain too, but you know that when you're writing a scene between characters, especially with good characters, it's so fun. Because if you like the characters, and especially if you have great actors and you already know those great actors, like it could go in any direction. I mean, a Loki Mobius scene, how many pages of worthwhile scenes could there be, right? I mean, it, it could go in any direction. It would be fun, delightful twists, turns, and surprises. But this is momentum-driven, serialized storytelling. And so each scene can't just be delightful. It has to be a means to an end. And it has to be the best possible version of that scene without fat that communicates the most important things. And in lesser hands, scenes that only aim to deliver the exposition or plot driving content feel as exciting as widgets, right? And there are many shows that, you, even shows that you and I like, mm -hmm. have scenes like that. All shows have scenes like that, but some more than others. And this show, it's not just that it celebrates conversation, it chooses the conversation so well. And that's what really impresses me about Michael Waldron, who wrote the show and the writing staff he assembled. An example being early in this episode, we are back on Lamentis. In many ways, we've never left. Not since, you know, that terrible game seven. If we're going back but, for Top Chef Lamentis, that's actually next season. They, they announced that. Uh, now that would be an incredible elimination where be, you don't just lose, you get hit by a meteor. Really on the clock. For that one. Um, but we're back there with Sylvie and Loki and the world is ending. And we understand the stakes and it's kind of beautiful and sad. And that conversation they have in that moment is maybe Lokis are born to lose. You know, it, it, it's a fundamental existential idea for a character and for a show and now for characters. And in that moment, it's delivered expertly 
that not only affects us emotionally and gives us a deeper understanding of these characters and allows them to share that communal moment that also maybe they're in love with each other, which is fascinating and weird, but it also sets up where we're going within this episode, not just within the series as a whole. It's really well done. You know, it's it's not everything I've just been saying in this long monologue. It's not sexy, you know, but it's just they did the work and I really felt it pay off. And for me, that payoff was pleasure. I agree with you. I thought I thought it was the best episode of the season. And arguably, like you said, I, I don't necessarily have the the list in front of me, but probably, if not the best, one of the best sh- uh, episodes that Marvel's done so far. If I had an issue with this series, I, I try. I was trying to boil it down uh, since last week's episode. I think it has something to do with the character of Loki himself, because if you are, in some ways, I find it more complicated to have, in his case, and there's not many cases like this, a pathological liar as your main character is more difficult than having like an anti-hero or a, mm-hmm. or a or an unlikable person. Um, because at a certain point, you just sort of lose true north with what a character wants and what a character's doing or what a character is if, if they're just always going to just lie. And I think that's obviously also driving the characters around Loki crazy at various points throughout the MCU, but especially on this series. And I thought that this episode inverted the entire thing is like what if everything else around loki is a lie you know Mm -hmm. what i mean what if Mm -hmm. this guy who is a mythological figure from a mythological land is now part of a piece of theater where we Mm -hmm. find out that myths aren't real that gods aren't real that the people that were supposed to are supposedly controlling time and space are actually just robots you know or just like basically yeah it's just such a Great idea, obviously, like Wizard of Oz. Like we've seen that kind of notion before. But it was also very Last Jedi. Yes, but I felt like that made the whole series click for me. Is you know to see basically like the way you beat a Loki is to lie to him. <laughs> you know, and yeah. Well, also just think about this, and again, I'll put it back in those same or to make, way. The way to make Loki look like a hero or a, a a protagonist is to have him now be a truth seeker. This this is the hardest thing, I think, about successful screenwriting, especially in this elevated, serialized IP age, which is these almost simple, although clearly not simple, decisions that you make at the earliest possible stage of the storytelling that click things into focus. And you're speaking of it, which is how do we turn this villainous, complicated, villainous, mischievous side player, who everyone is always happy to see, into the compass for a series and just basically reimagine what the character will be because we want him to be something different. Unlike Saul. It's not unlike Better Call Saul. You're right. And what, and I, and you, you hit the two building blocks of this right on the head, which is how do we make a a God relatable? Well, we make him essentially mortal in a immortal structure. We invert that. And And the second thing we do is we make him the last honest man in a structure built out of lies. Right. And that's very simple, but it's not really an execution. And it it undergirds this whole enterprise. That's why everything, I think, feels of a piece, not just a collection of great ideas, exciting intention, and cool, you know, accoutrement, like cool, uh, look who we got in this part, look who we could cast, look how much money we spent on these special effects. It's it's more than that. And, you know, the, the, just take the the prison that 
Mobius puts him in. And, and it's the the scenes with Sif, played by a bizarrely uncredited Jamie Alexander. I'm curious as to why that is, but you know, people recognize her from the Thor movies. Um, everyone, I, I know that everyone I did. definitely. I know that I did. Chris more than anyone rec- <laughs> recognized her and was thrilled to see to see her um, free of her. Speaking of blind spots, um, anyway. The design of that, again, so simple and funny because it's just Loki getting kneed in the groin over and over, but it's literally a device to break the character down and build him up again. And it gets him to do the thing that is important for antiheroes to do, but incredibly awkward to shoehorn into a script, which is to be like, here's why I do the bad thing I'm famous for. Let me reveal myself to you. Mm -hmm. But he does it. And he does it in high style and it's in a funny setup. And then when he comes out of that prison different and we feel differently about him and he has a different energy and suddenly he's a hero and then he gets melted and zapped. And that brings us to the other piece of the episode, which is that it was genuinely surprising. I, the Owen Wilson getting, you know, I, now I think we safe to assume that he's not gone, but yeah. getting pruned at that moment gave him a great, um, noble sacrifice. And I really sadness. hope that the next episode opens with like an eastbound and down esque jet ski scene for that guy. Oh God! I mean, we know we're getting him on a jet ski, right? Like it's too it's too good now. But it also, uh, but but it happening to Loki led to the mid credit scene that again everyone was aware of and everybody watched right away. Um, both posts of this podcast for sure, and it has Loki opening his eyes, not dead, but apparently in some sort of liminal space where other pruned variants exist and he's greeted by three different Lokis the most exciting of which to me is classic Loki played by one of the great classic actors of our time Richard E. Grant dressed the way Loki was dressed in Avengers number one the comic book in the 60s there's there's actually four four Lokis Andy oh was one an animal there's an alligator Right. Maybe, so I, I know maybe you didn't spend as much time yes. sort of thinking about post credit sequences like I do, but th- th- there was an alligator there. But so there's alligator Loki, there's kid Loki, which is which is canon. There was a kid Loki in the comics there's recently. There's Loki, there's like a real built Loki, and then there's Richard E. Grant's Loki, yeah. And I love, and it made me love the show even more because again, if you're making a comic book show about variants and time and multiverses, you better have fun you better have fun with it and you better go for it. And they're going for it. And I love it. And I'm very excited for next week's episode. I'm very excited for what the show is about. And I just want to say again, my excitement has absolutely nothing to do with the man behind the curtain. Right. You know, there are, we say this every week, there are multiple ways to enjoy Marvel shows, but I I promise you what's so great about this show is that you can enjoy it whether you know classic Loki or kid Loki or whether you don't because of how well it's being made and executed. If your pleasure center for the show is, ooh, Mephisto season has arrived or let's get me the Council of Kangs or I smell a mortis around the corner. Cool. Yeah. But I, you don't have to do that. I, I definitely have downshifted in the um, like amount of online reading I'm doing about these shows because I feel like after going through, is Reed Richards going to be outside the tent? Or, <laughs> that you're, ne- you're never getting over, never getting over that. Like that. Or is, you know, is the power broker, whoever. <laughs> and now we're here on the third time around. And obviously, I think a lot, if you've just done any reading about this show, like Kang the Conqueror is, is the sort of looming figure. It's going to be played by Jonathan Majors in the MCU, but it, allegedly his first, appearance is supposed to be in the next Ant-Man movie. So, and when they asked him about 
being on Loki, he was just basically like, what, what, is, what are you talking about? He might just be pulling a Cumberbatch where he's just like, I swear I'm not con, but you know, uh, we'll see. That being said, I think that this show really figured out how to make the most with what it's got. Now, obviously, they looks like a billion dollars. I'm not trying to say anything like about like the production quality, but it is a little bit of a chamber piece. Most of the scenes, <laughs> I was thinking that too. This are week. two to four people. They're in rooms. They're in hallways. They're chamber in, piece or COVID piece? Well, that might be one of the same. One, one might go hand in mm-hmm. hand. It might be. Hey, you know what? We're going to spend all this money on reel-to-reel tape recorders and all this production design and all these this set design and this realization of the world. And if that means that we can't have 10 more actors in certain scenes or that we don't do this X, Y, or Z scene, and you know, maybe like, did, did I think that like, are the fight sequences in Loki setting my hair on fire? No, but that's okay. They, they're, they're pretty easily to get to navigate. Good. Yeah, they're good. They're fine. Um, but yeah, like I think that they're but, doing a really good job finding the like WandaVision almost felt claustrophobic at times. Uh, Falcon and Winter Soldier, I felt like was almost trying too hard to be bad boys and like do, have a set piece in every every episode. This is kind of finding the third way. Have there been any exteriors other than the rocks on store in the rain in this entire series? Everything else I mean, is soundstage. Lamentous. Get, get Lamentous is a soundstage. I mean, no, Lamentus is... You obviously haven't been to, to Scottsdale in January. <laughs> Fair. But I mean, Lamentus is felt like Mandalorian court. Yeah, like that was that, 100% I, I, like I, I LED thought, screens. Yeah, they have the, the two of them sitting there and then they're projecting stuff for sure. But that's kind of impressive too, that it doesn't... It, you know, so that, you think I, that I, the, not, all the, the one-on-one scenes are kind of a COVID thing? No, I don't know. I, I don't know how much shifted. It also could be this is the show they wrote and you know it was well-suited. I don't know if they had to downgrade stuff. Um, Is this what you thought the show was going to be based on the trailer? I thought it was going to be more like Man from Uncle. I did too. and Like Adventures. I'm glad you brought that up. There was a moment early in this episode where I was like, well, here we go. It is, I, you know, I'm appreciating everything, but it is making the turn that Marvel movies make, even the silly ones, to swashbuckling hero stuff with emotional stakes. I mean, that there's, there is a formula, there is a, a rhythm, there is a vibe that Kevin Feige has imprinted upon these films that is, and movie, TV shows that have been extremely successful. And I was worried, I was starting to lamentous it a little bit because yeah, the version I had in my head was a lot more like, you know, goofball office shenanigans of them investigating stuff. But the show's called Loki. It's not called the TVA. It is doing the character work that I, I mean, these shows are like little workshops, you know, mm-hmm. where you can take a toy out of the main playpen and just tinker with it until it's the way you want it to be before you set it back loose into the wild. So this episode for me, maybe one of the reasons why I'm so excited about it was because I started to feel myself chafing against that. And then I just went with it because it was overall so successful. I agree with you. I think that I, I rewatched the trailer and I was just like, oh, you know, I thought every episode was going to be like Loki on another caper as an agent of the TVA mm-hmm. and each each week was going to be you know maybe we'd have like a renaissance fair week or maybe we'd have like a uh airplane like DB Cooper situation like they show but that's really like that was just a brief montage it wasn't it wasn't obviously what, to be there, what's there, interesting is there's a pretty cool show in that idea but still so what's interesting is that you know the the way this entire Marvel industry is set up now is that a good idea can spark 
something else. You know, sure. that, I mean, that's the Disney model, right? Like literally every stray idea in The Mandalorian was greenlit as a series. Um, <laughs> true. Late last year. That said, the purpose of the show seems to be introduce this omnipotent um, organization and then tear it down because we can't actually tell stories in a universe that has something this omnipotent. It's fake. It's a setup. And maybe its destruction will either prove that it was always a lie or it lets loose the Miles Moraleses and yeah, multiple or- Doctor Stranges or whatever. But, I mean, a workplace comedy set in the Marvel Universe where Owen Wilson and Pillboy from The Good Place investigate weird moments in the Marvel Universe history, like, you know, take my money. Yeah. It's Please, there for them. I, I'd much rather watch that than Young Avengers, probably. Well, it depends, you know, <laughs> like I young, like here are my power rankings. Alligator Loki show. Right. Number one. Office comedy with Owen Wilson. Mm-hmm. This is a Catherine Hahn like show. Mm-hmm. And then Young Avengers. My number one is the Richard E. Grant Loki one man show. Yeah. Like b- the bitter. I've been wearing Kelly Green spandex for 40 years, chain smoking, pouring something into his glass that isn't water just regaling us the stories about disrespect in asgard that's my number one but that's good your mileage may vary all right so andy and i are going to take monday off for uh the long weekend happy holidays yeah happy holidays to everybody happy holidays to our producer kai mcmullen uh thank you for putting up with a spoiling top chef for you uh we will be back next thursday i imagine and mm-hmm. then we'll do Loki. Maybe we'll do a mailbag. We got a bunch of shows coming up. White Lotus is coming up. There's a few things. We may not always be on the show together in the next couple of weeks because Andy and I are both going on vacations at various points in uh, the summer. But, you know, we still love each other and we still love you guys. So <laughs> we're, we're, go- we're going clamming. <laughs> yeah, we're going clamming. Right. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week. Happy Fourth of July, Baranskis. <laughs>